You're listening to another great podcast in the MyMac Podcasting Network. Hi, folks, and welcome to episode 36 of the Let's Talk Photography podcast. I'm your host, Bart Bouchotts. The panel today is small, but no less wonderful for it. I am joined by Antonio. Hi, Antonio. Hi, Bart. How are you doing? I am doing fine, but busy. Um, when, when you work in the education sector, September is an interesting month. <laughs> it's, like, it's actually the start of the year, if you think about it. I mean, it's a, yeah. it's like oh, a, big it's a new year. For us, yeah. yeah, it is indeed. For us, it's a big new year. When we don't get a party, we just get work. Lots of work. Um, Anyway, what I thought we'd do for this show, so last episode 35 was an interview with um, a photo history professor, uh, Jeff Curto, and I thoroughly enjoyed doing the interview. I hope people enjoyed listening to it. But I thought to, you know, I was hoping to encourage people to learn more about the history of photography, and I thought, how can I continue that theme? And so what I asked uh, people to do for this show was to choose two photographers. And I think what I actually said was one who was active 100 years ago and one who was active 50 years ago. And I then went and reinterpreted my own rules. And I decided to be 100 or more and 50. Uh, So I chosen someone from very, very early on in the history of photography for my first pick. And then you have someone from sort of the middle, I guess. And then we each have someone from the 1900s. Um, that's your show you can do what you want <laughs> you can change the point, rules yes, it's, it's my ball and I can go home if I like um, <laughs> so I thought we might do these chronologically um, so sort of run through basically run forward through history through four photographers um, and so the the person I have chosen as my first pick is a British female photographer who was active from about the 1860s until the 1880s-ish, or maybe into the 1890s a little bit. Uh, Her name was Julia Margaret Cameron, and she was... She wasn't quite an aristocrat, but she she hung around in a high society in, in the UK, and she was very involved in the whole British Empire thing. She spent time in India and all sorts of stuff. She died in Ceylon, actually. Um, but she... Basically, when her kids grew up and left home... She started to feel a bit lonely, and so they bought her a camera. And at the age of 42, I think it was, maybe 43, she... Sorry, 48. So in 1863, which is only 30-ish years after the invention of photography, uh, at the age of 48, she took up photography as a female, which was very rare in them days. And because of the circle she hung around in, she has taken portraits that almost everyone listening here has seen the portraits but doesn't know the photographer because so early in the history there weren't a lot of photographers. So there are not a lot of portraits of Charles Darwin. But there is uh, Julia Margaret Cameron's portrait of Charles Darwin. So the first photograph I've sort of picked to illustrate the point, which will be the first link in the show notes, is her 1868 portrait of Darwin. And if you look at it, you'll just say, oh, I recognize that picture. Because that is the picture we all know of Charles Darwin. Very the, pronounced the, brow the book, ridge. The book jacket <laughs> picture. Yeah, I mean, it is. Yeah, right? yeah. When we think Darwin, yeah. we think the, the big the big eyebrow ridge and the big beard, and there he is, and it's Julia Margaret Cameron who did it. Um, and she got in, she wasn't taken particularly seriously, actually, by the, the photography establishment. 
because she had she, her focus wasn't always perfect. Like Darwin's beard isn't particularly perfectly focused here, but she she captured the essence of people in such a way that it doesn't matter if they're not perfect. It just speaks to you. So I I love that picture. But the one that really, really, really gets me from her early work is also a portrait of a famous person. Uh, But this is literally, to me, this is the ultimate mad scientist. So he's a guy called Sir John Herschel. Uh, He was the son of the famous astronomer royal William Herschel who discovered Uranus. And uh, John Herschel is actually the man who invented the word photography, which is rather cool. Um, and he also, he had done early experiments with uh, silver salts and then not bothered following through. And then Nieps basically took up where he left off. And then he later circled back around to photography, coined the word photography, wrote some very important papers on the nature of photography, and then went off to become a great mathematician and astronomer. And he was basically a polymath. And I think his biggest problem was he couldn't concentrate on anything, uh, which is probably why he didn't invent the actual thing, photography, but he did invent the word photography. But anyway... If you he look didn't at the picture on, his, on combing his hair, either. He, no, he didn't spend any time <laughs> combing his hair at all, whatsoever. I mean, he is a complete and utter mad scientist, but, you know, I, I'm quite drawn to him. I think he's a very interesting character. And again, Julie Margaret Cameron, she basically, she was known that whenever someone would um, come to visit, they would have no choice in the matter. She was apparently a woman of strong will, and they would pose, whether they liked it or not. And uh, she also did a lot of tableau work. And random passers-by um, on the... Uh, she, she was living on the coast at the time. People promenading up the coast would be, you know, sort of waylaid and hauled into her studio and made to dress oh. up as King so-and-so or Queen such-and-such and plopped into a tableau. So apparently she was quite the force of nature and didn't really care that the, the, the hoi polloi didn't take her seriously and just kept shooting amazing photographs. So the, the, there's two there of John Herschel pop into the show notes, which I think are... Well worth looking at. And then, when, you know, speaking of famous people, then Alfred Lord Tennyson is the other one that I picked out that she also photographed. And I think that is also probably the photograph of Tennyson that everyone would know. And looks like quite the chap, actually. Um, quite stern. Yeah, it's a, it's a striking portrait. What's, uh, what's interesting is I'm looking through the wiki page on her, mm-hmm. is that uh, there's a painting of her. By yeah. George Frederick Watts. There's a, there's a painting of her, a painting of a photographer, a painting of a portrait photographer. Yeah, because that's the, that's, that's the age she was at. While she was growing up, yeah. people were painted, and then she was one of the early portrait photographers, which is why yeah. one of the few photographic portraits of Tennyson is by her, because there was very few people doing it. Yeah. It's interesting that uh, she started out uh, photography late in life, 48, it yeah. says, and... Uh, you know, for those of us who are in that in that age range, and it's, it's never too late to pick up a camera and start and start yeah. photographing. And back then, the cameras were not, you know, like we have now. So it's a lot more work. Uh, yeah, and for her. as I say, she was upper class, so she had staff do the lifting. You think, she, yeah. she did the developing and stuff. She 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 used to apparently she used to stink of developer and so forth. Oh, <laughs> which is fine. I mean, you know, if you're going to do it. Uh, but the last of the portraits I've picked is one that is amazing to me because when you look at it, it could have been taken last week. There is something so modern about this 1864 portrait. It's it's um, a Shakespearean actress, Elaine Terry, um, 
And she's just sort of not looking at the camera, leaning against some wallpaper, looking melancholy, I guess. But it, I don't know what it is about the photograph. But to me, it just says that could have been taken last week with someone doing a bit of retro photography. It's mm. it's amazing to me that that photograph is over 150 years old. And uh, one of the interesting things, at least through the presentation on the uh, page, is that it's in a circular mount uh, yeah. mat. And uh, a lot of the photographers back then um, not only chose to have displayed their images in squares, but would use the circular mat, um, which adds something interesting to the to the whole feel of the picture. Weren't the uh, first Kodak circular as well? Yeah, I think so. I don't know why. Maybe it's because they thought the eye was round or who well, knows? The, the lens aesthetic. projects around image. And in the case of, of Kodak, Eastman felt it was a waste to throw away perfectly good exposed emulsion. <laughs> Yeah, that's interesting. But uh, you know, the film was the film was square. The negative would come out square. Mm-hmm. So, and a lot of them back then were contact prints, uh, sometimes against glass. So it's interesting. It's I, I've seen that kind of display in a museum, and I, I, I was always thinking why we should bring that back. It is a nice a while, format. But, if Instagram mm-hmm. can make square popular, then let, let's 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 vote that yeah. circle will be the next fad. It is a beautiful picture, though. The 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 light quality. On the woman, it's uh, you know her face is in a little bit in shadow, but it's getting some light from someplace, and she's got her arm uh, held up like holding onto a necklace. Uh, you're right about the melancholy look, but uh, not not terribly sad picture, I think. Uh, yeah, it, it's some a, way sort thoughtful. of a, yeah, a muted emotion. She's not laying it on thick. Yeah, yeah, very posed though. Obviously, I mean all, all of her pictures uh, that I see are all are posed. Yes. Um, not very candid or I'm not sure uh, in those early days of the moment. photography how, how, how practical candid would be. Well, that's true. But I, I have seen uh, less. I have seen the occasional candid yeah. shot. But yeah, <laughs> what is candid? Yeah. People are blurred in the background or I don't know. But uh, good choice on, on her. Yeah. And I, I've linked to a few, a few of her other shots, not of famous people. Actually, there's, let me see, which one do I want to particularly highlight? Um, is it? There's one of them with a kid, which is just amazing. Um, mm. Find that one. Uh, ah, I Wait is the title of the photograph. I'll have it <laughs> in the show notes as well. Uh, ooh, do I have the wrong link? Oh, no. Oh, Disaster. Oh no! Okay, I'm gonna have to find that now because I really want that picture. <laughs> yeah, that takes us I'm to John sure Herschel again. Fun. Although he has a hat on in this one, which covers up the fact that his hair is a mess. Well, a little bit. Um, sugar. Yeah. Okay, let's go back to Julia Margaret Cameron. Wikimedia is not well organized sometimes. No, no, but it's a you know it's a Wild West show there sometimes. Yeah, photographs yeah. by Julia Margaret Cameron. Come on. Well, the wiki article is uh, the Wikipedia article is pretty thorough on her, uh, and a nice selection of pictures. So I'd encourage people to check it out. But uh, you know, when you see this work in a museum or something like that, when it's hung up on a wall or something like that, it begins to take on a different life. And I think I believe I've seen some of this work uh, in I think 2013. Oh yeah, I'm looking at it at the, at the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York uh, had. Uh, some of her work. Uh, it might even have some of her work on permanent display. I think um, they do, actually, yeah. Yeah, yeah. 
And it's interesting because we're viewing these pictures on a little screen and not the original format that they're meant to be seen. And I, I definitely encourage people to go see the uh, prints um, yeah. in person because you really can't get to see the subtleties of the tones or the quality, the texture of the paper, or even the, the round mats that we were just talking about. You, you don't really get the feel for it from looking on a screen. I know it's difficult for most people to go to these uh, uh you know, museums and see it, and we're great that we have the internet because then the, at least you can see the pictures. Yes. You know, but uh, they're, they're, they were made to be shown as prints. I mean, this, yes. that's the way they presented photography. So I've just sent you a link in the Skype, and I'll, I'll, I will have the correct link in the show notes to the picture I was talking about, the little girl with the angel wings. But that actually says underneath it, it's an albumen print, right? So egg white, right? This is egg printed whites. with egg whites. That's how early we are in the history of photography. Egg whites with some silver salts. And it is an 8x10. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that is a substantial size. Actually, sorry, not 8x10. 12 and 7 eighths by 10. 12 and 7 eighths by 10. It's a substantial substantial negative, but it's not a very large print, which is interesting. Because they would make contact, contact prints. Yeah. yeah, what I'm saying, it's, you know, if we looked at a negative like that today, we'd be like, oh, my Ooh, gosh, Let's make a post the size of a house, yeah. Right. But then when you print it, it's like, oh, it's just a small print. But the amount of detail uh, in those negatives um, is usually kind of amazing. So, yeah. Yeah. If you were to enlarge it, larger. But uh, I think most of these prints were not meant to be enlarged. They more more often than not were just contact printed. So if someone photographs something on a two and a quarter piece of film, uh, most likely it would get printed at that exact same size. Uh yeah, now, in 1972, had the enlarger even been invented yet, or did you really have... It may use? or may not have been, but I think for most people, I mean, it might have been out of the uh, reach of a lot of people, and it would just be easier to, you know, I mean, think about it. You don't need to uh, set up any kind of crazy device. You just take the negative and you put it on a piece of paper and you shine light on it, and then you develop it, and, you, you, and yeah. you've got your picture. And I'm sure, you know, small little pictures were, were very well... Um, taken back then you know the things that they could put into little cases and put on shelves and and whatnot so yeah um, i don't know if people back then were really worried about getting huge prints like uh uh we are today for some strange reason I mean, <laughs> yeah because of course portraits in those days would have came in all sizes i mean one of the most right. common things that your nearest and dearest you would have painted the size of a locket so you'd have like right. a, a painter who would intricately and you know very skillfully and beautifully paint a portrait of your loved one into a teeny tiny locket that you would then carry with you so size wasn't yeah it wasn't all about making it big it was but something you could handle and hold as well and that you know yeah. 13 by 8 inches that's that's a not a bad size for print no not at all not at all um, I do also want to mention that um, Julia Margaret Cameron was inducted into the International Photography Hall of Fame, and they actually have a bio on her as well, which I'm going to link in the show notes. And their bio is actually quite long and detailed, so it's actually quite a fun bio to read as well. And then I also found one in from the Guardian newspaper in the UK from 2015 when there was an exhibition of her work in the UK that year. And so they've done an interesting write-up on her as well. So that's two two good bios, and I'll have links to all of the photographs we talked about. Um, and I guess sort of the, the one thing I definitely want to say before before we move on off her is that probably the thing that I I take away from from her the most is that it doesn't matter what the critics say, just keep at it. You know, Ooh, it's mm-hmm. not perfectly focused. Yeah, it's all the pixel peepers. Just keep at it. You make great photographs. So don't don't <laughs> worry too much. Yeah. 
Okay, um, do you have any final thoughts on Julia Margaret Cameron? Uh, no, I mean, other than, like, uh, again, I'm looking towards the bottom. Oh, there are some photographs of her, but I'm really blown away by the painting of her. Yeah. Uh, and it's funny that the, her, her, uh, the expression in the painting and actually some of the portraits of her, the photographic portraits, are very similar to the um, expressions that she was capturing in her subjects. So she's almost mimicking... I guess that's um, what she felt the pose was. Yeah, yeah. So it's uh, oh, it's interesting, and also for um, I mean, you know, to uh, for a woman to be a photographer back then, I wonder what it was like. I I um, tried to find a reference to it, but I, I know I heard the story that she was basically told that she was not allowed to become a member of the whatever the British Photographic Society was because she was female, and it just wasn't yeah. a feminine thing to be messing around with chemicals. Yeah. Um. So yeah. So it. it I don't think it would have been easy for her, but at the same time, the, the impression you get when you read stories about her is that she was a that she had a strong will, and I don't think she seemed to mind that people didn't think it was appropriate for her to be taking photographs. I'm I'm a little surprised that there hasn't been a biopic made of her yet. It seems like her story would be really interesting. I yeah, I sort of get the impression that it would make a good movie. I, I think she, you know, I think it would be, and especially if you think of all the great characters you could have in it, because you know, mm-hmm. if you're friends with mm-hmm. Tennyson and Darwin and Herschel, like you're gonna have you know, yeah. some meat there, right? <laughs> yeah, the photography almost might be a background to it. I mean, um, it, yeah. you know, I could see it as a good independent film, nothing too big, but uh, well, yeah, because she's born it, in Calcutta, she dies in Ceylon, so we're talking full yeah. on, you know, full on British Empire stuff here. Yeah. So anybody out there who's <laughs> get a Kickstarter together and and make a make a movie of her, yeah. a biopic of Julia Margaret Cameron, please. We'd like to see it. Yeah, I certainly would. Um, yeah, and be accurate with the photography, please. <laughs> well, yeah, it would be fun actually if you could just sort of at bits of the movie fade into the actual photographs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You'd have to yeah, have very good see actors, that. but it could be. Fun. Yeah, that would be good. Yeah, okay, so as I say, plenty of links will be in the show notes for people to experiment around. So that is my first pick, which is British photographer Julia Margaret Cameron. So next, chronologically, is your first pick, Antonio. So who would you like to tell us about? Uh, I would like to tell you about Alfred Stieglitz. That is a name I have heard before. And it's also actually, it's funny, when I asked last month, um, I sort of dumped the question. So, you know, who's your favorite of all the photographers you talk about in your course? Um, the name that jumps right to the top for um, Jeff last last week was Stieglitz as well. So, great. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah, he's one of the uh, photographers that you do study when you take the history of photography. He's had a lot to do hmm. uh, in this world. Um he was born in New Jersey, Hoboken, so just across the river from where He's I am. He's a local boy. Local boy, yeah. And then he ended up, uh, he did end up, um, actually when he was a kid, he went to Germany to be schooled and then came back to New York in uh, 1890, I think. Uh, and, uh, you know, he wanted to be a photographer and he wanted to use photography um, not just as a, a way to record what was there, but he really wanted to use it as an art, a way to express art, a way to express himself. So, you know, rather than just a recording of somebody like the Cameroon portraits were, or are kind of just like recordings of these people. Uh, he wanted to be more creative with the photography. He believed it could be more like painting. Um, and, 
uh, at some point in his uh, lifetime, he uh, created um, or was part of uh, a group of photographers that created this movement called pictorialism, which is more about um, not abstract photography, but more about um, – I think the photography is more about feeling hmm. than about r recording. And there's not a lot of uh, – well, let's just say there weren't a lot of pixel peepers in this, <laughs> in this movement. Um, right. It was really more about recording atmosphere and uh, the sort of the intangible using uh, the photographic process. So it wasn't just taking pictures. But it was also very heavily – um, part um, the, you were uh, they were making prints and uh, prints were uh, very very important uh, in this movement and the style of photography and the style of printmaking. Uh, so there was a lot of handheld uh, albumin prints or or platinum prints um, and often a lot of the pictures were I don't want to say abstract but um, you, you had to work to look at them. You know they weren't just like a picture of. The Flatiron Building in New York, which is this, you know, old landmark, and it's the Flatiron Building in fog with rain and obscured trees covering it, and and it was never a clear image. So Stiglitz was part of this movement. Do do I remember uh, correctly that he also later in life had a, a period where he just took pictures of clouds? Yes, because clouds were very emotional. <laughs> Well, some the, of the um, cloud pictures are pretty darn cool. Yeah. I, I actually haven't looked at the cloud pictures in a while, so I, I don't quite remember them. But I do remember his, you know, sort of his idea about taking them. Uh, again, it wasn't about recording the clouds. It was really about how he, you know, the recordings were a projection of how he felt while he was taking the pictures. So, I have to say, so the, the first link you have that I'll be putting in the show notes is to the article from The Met about him. And yeah, you just it's a nice winter and stuff. So they have a few of his photographs there, but the one they have of horses pulling a trolley, mm -hmm. and it's obviously so cold the horses are steaming. It's a very surreal yeah. picture. <laughs> Some of his uh, the pictures that I enjoy the most are of New York City. Uh, he has, um, in fact, I think that one of the horses being pulled is is might be Fifth Avenue, perhaps. It's, it's title is the terminal. So is there somewhere where there's a big terminal at Fifth there's Avenue? A, there's a couple of terminals. There could have been one Fifth Avenue. Uh, there's, I mean, there's a, I guess it would be a train terminal. Um, he's got a lot of pictures of, of this snowy winter uh, in New York. Um, around, you know, about 100 years ago, I was looking for a time period. Uh, the pictorialists were were just prior to World War One. Yeah. Um, I think they began to lose some steam after World War One. I'm guessing. I'm guessing World War One changed a lot of people and a lot of yeah. attitudes. I'm not sure. I'm not sure the full story of the pictorialism, but uh, uh, at least for Stieglitz, it it started to shift after uh, 1918, 1920. Um, and just for uh, a little bit of knowledge, he uh, eventually married the painter um no i'm sorry <laughs> gosh i'm spacing out on her name georgia o'keefe uh, georgia o'keefe yes and he did a, an entire series of portraits of her um basically uh saying that you could not capture a person with a single image and so he just recorded her uh over and over and over and over again um and if you can ever get to see these pictures that he photographed of her uh they're just they're just beautiful 
Um, there's a there's a few in the in that Met link you have for the show notes. Actually, there's uh, Georgia O'Keefe neck, <laughs> and there's another one of Georgia O'Keefe, pretty much with her neck completely covered by a very very big collar. Um, yeah, it's interesting juxtaposition those two actually. Yeah, uh, and um, I, I I pulled I pulled out his name basically following your instructions. About, <laughs> yeah, hundred years ago, literally a hundred years ago. I didn't even. I was like hundred years ago. Wow, nineteen sixteen. And, you know, as I'm looking at his work and, and sort of projecting it into the future today, it's like he would certainly uh, find this use that we have of filters these days with Instagram and Hipstamatic and whatever uh, that we use in Photoshop to alter the pictures. I think he'd be really interested in them um, in some way. And I think he might be sort of appalled in another way. Uh, the interesting part is I think it, a lot of these filters today, you know, add to this pictorialism is really about how the picture makes you feel. And so many people like to, to adjust the pictures, um, when they're filtering them to, to sort of reflect how they feel about what they're looking at. And I think he'd be appalled at the, the sort of simplicity and ease of it. Yeah. You know, so, and I dug up, I dug up a couple of really neat quotes from him. Uh, which I would like to share if I can yeah, just go find for it. the page. Well, while you're finding uh, the page, do you have it there? Or yeah, I got it. I got okay, it. Okay, you got yeah. it. There's, there's, there's two short ones and a long one. But uh, the first one was wherever there is light, one can photograph. <laughs> I really love that because that encapsulates yeah. a lot about photography for me. It's like carry your camera with you all the time, and wherever there's some light, you can take a picture. Uh, and then one he's got about uh, retouching. He goes, I don't. I do not object to retouching, dodging, or accentuation as long as they do not interfere with the natural qualities of the photographic technique. And so that's where I think, you know, he would be both enjoying people manipulating their pictures and maybe appalled by the hmm. um, sort of cookie cutter way that that we're doing it. You know, we people buy these prepackaged filters and for Photoshop or whatever program they're editing in, and they just sort of cookie, you know, cutter stamp that uh, onto their image saying, oh, and now it makes it look better. And, and people are not thinking about what that means. But I do think that he would enjoy uh, the manipulation of the picture because I think that's what he was doing back then by using a really uh, intricate printing process, you know, um, perhaps the the uh, platinum printing and even the way he was photographing by, you know, maybe using slow shutter speeds to show movement. You know, today yeah. we, we talk about like, you want to stop movement and you know, m more often than not, people are going to set a high shutter speed so that movement is stopped. And it's like, well, what's wrong with showing the movement? What's wrong with showing the blur? Uh, what's, you know, the object is moving, right. And you want to record that, let it move on the screen. So he would be very happy to shoot something at a very slow shutter speed and let it blur because that's what's happening. You know? Yeah. Um, as you click through, as you actually, as you click through his pictures in that, uh, the met link and you just look at medium, he was experimenting with everything. There's hardly yeah, two of them yeah. seem to be the same. Yeah. He, he, he is one of the, I, I recommend him highly for, for the audience, for people to, uh, to really look at his pictures. I mean, he's, he's right there at the, you know, not too far away from the beginning of photography and he's really looking to move it in a different direction. I mean, prior to that, really photography was about recording what was in front of the camera and, and there was very little expression with it. Yeah. I mean, perhaps, you know, aside someone like Julia Cameron, 
uh, and I'm sure a few other people, but I would say generally people are recording, you know, what's reality. And he's part of this movement to move away from that, to say, I can actually express myself emotionally with a photograph, just like yeah. a painter can, or just like a sculptor can. Um, and so I really recommend that people look at this gentleman's work because it is, he, he's almost, I think, ahead of his time uh, in some way. Um, and there was one more quote I did want to read. It was a little bit long, yeah, but go for it. Uh, bear myth with me. And if I don't mess up, <laughs> I was going to say, I hate reading out loud. So we'll see how I hate do. reading out loud too, but I'm trying to get better at it. So, uh, so Stieglitz said something, let's see, let me here call attention to one of the most universally popular mistakes that have to do with photography, that of classing supposedly excellent work as professional and using the term amateur to convey the idea of immature productions and to excuse atrociously poor photographs. As a matter of fact, nearly all the greatest work is being and has always been done by those who are following photography for the love of it, not merely for financial reasons. As the name implies, an amateur is one who works for love. And as viewed in this light, the incorrectness of the popular classification is readily apparent. Well, here, here. Here, here is a absolutely. My own experience of this, if I can share this mm. with you and the audience, um, comes from uh, the fact that I was doing commercial work for so long and I was shooting stock photography. And, you know, the stock photography business, you know, the bottom dropped out in because everybody's shooting it and there's micro stock. And basically my business took a – and I really was just – I mean, I enjoyed taking stock pictures and I enjoyed making really nice photographs and having people buy them. But ultimately, I didn't get any real satisfaction from it. And when I finally started to do my street photography, which is more recent, um, and I realized that I'm not doing it for any kind of financial reason because there really isn't a financial reason to shoot street photography. You don't, yeah, you don't get into that business. You don't get it really. Don't get into photography to make money. I realized how much more satisfying it was, and I realized that it's reflecting in the photographs. So, I mean, there are really good commercial photographers out there who make beautiful work, and it is commercial photography, and it's great. But I think the lesson here from way back 100 years ago is basically saying, you know, we're taking the pictures because we love to take pictures. And, you know, perhaps you'll make some money on it. Perhaps you won't. What difference does it make? I mean – the idea is to just go out and take pictures. So, um, well, I've been banging to... on the drum that the word amateur is not an insult; it is a compliment. It, it, it yes. I don't, when people use it as a as an insult, it's insulting. <laughs> I get very cranky with people who say, "Oh, it's a very amateur job." Right. What you mean? They did it for the love of it, and it's fantastic. Oh no, you mean it's terrible? No, that's not amateur. I think the idea is that when when someone says professional, they ought not to mean someone is a better photographer. I think they just ought to mean that someone is making their living at doing it and an amateur not necessarily is making a living at it, but they're both you can be essentially both. the same. Yeah, essentially the same. Yeah. So, um, um, so anyway, Albert so, Stieglitz, high on the list. Well, of, just uh, before we move off Stieglitz, actually, I have okay. a, few, a few things I just went through in as well. So, Stieglitz, I guess, is a big figure in photography, A, because he was a very interesting photographer, but he also was a big supporter of photography in the abstract because he ran galleries for years in American Place, I think it was his gallery. He supported right. up-and-coming photographers. Was it Stieglitz who helped get um, Ansel Adams up and running? 
I don't know specifically. I know he uh, got Paul Strand up and running. Um, yeah. then and again, another, another great photographer. I'm trying to remember great, yes. whether it was Stieglitz. There's a story of Ansel Adams as a very young kid coming in. I think it was into an American place. I'm pretty sure it was into Stieglitz, where he basically came in in the morning. He'd come down from wherever he was on the train, came in in the morning, handed his portfolio, into, in, and your man said, yeah, come back to me after lunch. And he sort of came back in sheepishly and he just he made him sit on a really hot radiator as he just very, very, very slowly paged through his work. And at the end of it, he just went, that's very good or something like that and, and let him on his way. Um, but it, it was a, a big form of influence, Ansel Adams. Mm. He, uh, he had his own gallery. Um, what was it called? Uh, 291. And 291, it was an address on Fifth Avenue. Life. Called an American place was that not also his? Yeah, yeah, and he was also uh, part of a publication called Camera Work. Oh um, yes, yes. So a lot of early publications, uh, for, you know, he was responsible for for or partially responsible for getting uh, other photographers' work published and seen by people. Um, so yes, he's a very strong advocate of younger photographers as well. And I guess um, photography as art, I guess, was his biggest thing art. in one word, wasn't it? Yeah. It's interesting as as he, he like passed through that that time period and then went back to sort of, you know, like, you know, especially these portraits of uh, of Georgie O'Keefe. I think when mm. they moved to, um, I believe he was doing a lot of them in New Mexico because uh, that's, I think, where they lived. That's certainly where she was doing her painting. I don't know the full story of their lives. That's another movie. Yeah, actually, you really could make. Actually, a movie. was there made a movie? Why do I think there was a movie about this? Well, on the internet, will know. know. The internet knows everything. Yeah, I know the internet. Knows. Someone, someone might, you know, if there's a if I, I movie, don't feel like looking for it now. But Stieglitz. I think there was a film. Could be wrong. If not, there's another film that should be made because that's an interesting, is an interesting character, especially their lifestyle. Mm, nothing showing up immediately, but that doesn't. No, mean... no. I thought there was I thought there was something there. But it's again one of those it's one of those beautiful stories. Um and I've seen he's got plenty of work uh at the uh museum and uh, at the Metropolitan Museum of Art and another one worth Hang on, there's a film called Georgia O'Keefe. Why do I think he might uh-huh. be in that? Yeah, he must be in that. Yeah. Plus, Georgia O'Keefe is a young painter in nineteen ten with Alfred Stieglitz. Oh, Jeremy Irons plays Stieglitz. Yes, yeah, that, right. That's, that's, right. that's one I got to watch. That's... Yep, 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 yep. Um, but anyway, if you ever get a chance to come to New York or any museum that's got some of his prints, uh, worth worth seeing. You know, they're as beautiful as paintings. Well, I, mean, I would say that's even not even a good comparison. I mean, they're like beautiful works of art. In that case, go to the Met and look at a photograph called the Steerage. The steerage, yes, that's it from is 19... one of my favorite pictures because it it's a fascinating picture and it's taken actually right in Hoboken. So just basically as people are coming off the ship, I guess, mm-hmm. and the composition is all wrong and yet so right. I mean, the picture, <laughs> the center of the photograph is an empty gangway, and yet the composition works. All the subjects are around the edge of this big emptiness in the middle mm-hmm. of the picture, and it just mm-hmm. works. Lovely photo. And uh, maybe we could print it and show it to uh, uh, Donald Trump. You know what? You came to America. Remember right, that. Your grandfather is probably on this boat. Drumpf. Wasn't that his surname <laughs> back then? Trump. It's a, it's a great picture of the um, immigrants coming into uh, New York. Yeah. Uh, 1946. 
Oh no, wait, sorry. What year? No, it's early. Printed, sorry, nineteen oh seven. Printed in nineteen. Printed. Yeah. In or yeah. before nineteen thirteen. So that's yeah. in the lead up to World War One. So it's a very yeah, it's very early. It explains the hats. Yeah, and you know he's a, like even though he's from Jersey, I consider him a New York photographer. He's taking he's yeah he's taking pictures of areas that actually still look the same in some way. This uh, there's one picture in the snow of the there's a what's called the Metropolitan Life Insurance Building on Twenty Third Street, and he's got a picture of it in the snow, uh, or actually in the background in the foreground of snow. And so these are locations that still some of the locations still exist. And so uh, the Flatiron Building is still there. Yeah. Um, you won't see a horse pulled, uh, you know, carriages in front of it anymore. But uh, it's still a beautiful building, and you can still get some of the same kind of views. And um, I think I don't know if I ever mentioned to you my friend Keith Goldstein, uh, who's a who's a New York photographer, friend of mine. Anyway, he I know he's got a, a wonderful image that really uh, reminisces of uh, Stieglitz's shot of the of the. Um, of the flat iron building in in Keith's own way, of course, but uh, yeah, uh, yeah. Um, so that's my that's my old guy. No, that's a good old guy. Good old guy. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So my less old person is I went. I decided I was going to do female photographers because they get shortchanged way too often. So I was like, well, I'm not going to be part of that. So I picked two female photographers. Uh, so my next pick is Imogen Cunningham who would also definitely come under the heading of a character and a half. Um, So she would have been born 1883, died 1976, and she basically had a camera in her hand for most of her life. So none none of this starting at age 48. And I think the oldest self-portrait I have, I found of her was uh, in 1974. So she died in 76. So she was uh, quite old by then. And even actually that self-portrait is very telling. She... I don't know. To me, she always looks like the granny in um, Tweety cartoons. <laughs> uh, she could sit on the she could sit on the chair and be Whistler's mother too. Yeah. Bit. Um, so she she was photographing basically for decades and decades and decades. So the amount of stuff she's photographed is obviously very wide ranging. Uh, but she was involved in another one of these sort of groups of you know, well, groups of photographers that help make photographers. Um, So a bit like Stieglitz in that sense. She was involved with something called Group F64. And they Mm -hmm. were all about capturing sort of the real world in its natural beauty. Hence, you know, big wide F number. Um, Can you imagine how small of a (laughs) F number that is? And and a lot of the large cameras had that you could go down to F64. And the larger the camera, that means if you're going all the way to F64, it really is a teeny teeny tiny little pinprick yeah yeah also everything would be in focus it's yeah. pretty much uh, depth of field forever yeah all of it we'll have all of it please. yeah <laughs> even behind you sorry <laughs> infinity plus a little bit um actually yeah. there's a link i will put in the show notes but i'm marking it as nsfw because it involves nudity uh yeah imogen cunningham was not afraid of nudity um she didn't she didn't only photograph nudes but there are certainly nudes in her work and there some of them are excellent um but this picture is just too good not to share. It comes with the warning that it's NSFW, so don't click on it if you don't want to. But it's a picture taken in Yosemite when she was already quite an old lady, but she's there standing next to the giant big tree, looking for all the world like the granny at a Tweedy and Sylvester, with a very, very old-fashioned camera around her neck and a young, pretty nude woman next to her. It's the most surreal but wonderful mm-hmm. photograph mm-hmm. I've seen in a long time. It's obviously not by very her, but it's, I love it. And a very famous picture. She's also... 
got several shots of uh, Alfred Stieglitz in uh, 1934. Yes. Portraits of him. Ties back uh-huh. beautifully. Yeah. I know. <laughs> that, that it's an incestuous out. world, this Especially photography thing. Because we didn't, we didn't coordinate who we were picking. So No, that's true, yeah. actually. Now, she, she also had a lot of relationships with, um, well, through F64, uh, Ansel Adams. Ansel so Adams, yes. Adams, that would have been another good call in. Um, actually, there's a story I want to tell because it's just, I think. Everyone says she was a character and she was a force of nature. But I think this one story about her and uh, Adams was sort of captures at least some of that wit anyway. So he, Ansel Adams is, to some extent, he's famous because he wanted to be famous, right? He, he was certainly no shrinking violet, um, to put it mildly. <laughs> I mean, his photographs are superb, but he's better known than other superb photographers because he made it his business to be better known than most photographers. And one of the things he did to publicize himself was to have his work printed around coffee tins, uh, which and she sent one or he sent one to Imogen Cunningham, basically showing off. And she didn't think much of it. Um, so she sent him one back with some soil in it and a letter that said, just add water. <laughs> so he did. And a little seedling grew and became a strong seedling. And then one day he discovered, as a police officer came into his house, that it was a pot plant. She basically had sent the message, your work has gone to pot. <laughs> I think that's just a wonderful story. So this is, again, these people, I think we could make films about all of them we've mentioned so far, and she would be on that list too. Um, they ought to. They ought to. Someone. Yeah. She's also in the International Photography Hall of Fame, so they have a bio on her there too, so I'll link to that in the show notes as well. And also, there's actually a website, imagingcunningham.com, that has a large archive of her work. Um, and I just realized I had meant to go through these show notes again and take a f- basically do a little bit more editing to remove some of the links. But uh, what the hell, I'll leave all the links in. She just mm-hmm. Her work is so wide-ranging, it's kind of hard to decide what to choose. I sort of... I put the links in sort of chronological order. So there's there's a self-portrait of herself from the 1920s, which is an interesting contrast then to herself in her, you know, in 19, when, when she was two years from death in the 70, in uh-huh. 50 years later. No, 70 years. 50 years uh-huh. later. I can't do maths. I'm terrible at maths, especially live on air. Um which is an interesting contrast, those two. There's also uh, a picture of Ansel Adams at work, which is quite a nice one. Um, but oh, then... she's got plenty of photographers. I mean, obviously from the uh, from the Group 64 uh, picture. Of, um, but even later in 73, she's got a picture of Brassaigne. She's also got this great picture of Brett Weston in 1922 as a kid. As, a, yes. as, this, as this young man sort of standing in front of a sculpture looking very... You yeah, know, that's one of the ones I had picked out. That is, Brett I think Weston. it's an amazing portrait. And and what's what if we all, you know, for those of us who don't know, Brett Weston, you know, became a very famous photographer as well. So it looks like him as a child, he's been uh, surrounded by photography. And this portrait, it's a beautiful portrait. Yeah. Um, I mean, she's doing portraits. She's doing still lives of flowers. I mean, if if anybody really wants some inspiration about uh, what to photograph? Just look at her her portfolio uh, yeah. and what it covers. There, She's got some some, some du- du- double exposure images. Did you see those? Yeah, I picked out one of those uh, with with a, a a portrait with a leaf over it, and it, it works surprisingly well. It's mm-hmm. very bizarre because Just, the head is almost floating. 
in this other world and there's these semi-transparent leaves over it, but it works. Yeah. Uh, plenty of pictures of Edward Weston, um, the photographer. Yeah, I was very uh, close to picking Weston, but then I decided to keep the female theme going. Yeah, well, good. Um, I, I really, you know, and are these just beautiful uh, pictures of plants. Um, you know, I, I like to think that there's there's pictures all around you, and, and she found them uh, anywhere, you know. So, obviously, she you, you said she was born with a camera in her hands, and she died with a camera in her hands. And it's, it's very obvious from the... Uh, yeah. from the portfolio that she just loved exploring with the camera. And I guess tying back to my first one, she also seemed to hang around with a fair few famous people. The portrait of Cary Grant she took in 1932 was pretty darn striking. He was obviously in his younger days, Cary Grant. Yeah. I can see yeah. why he was a, a well-liked actor. Um, a lot going from there in that portrait. she got James Cagney as well. Uh, a few other people. I'm noticing. I mean, you could. It's a it's a rabbit hole looking at our portfolio. By the way, it really is because <laughs> I, I've narrowed it down to about ten links here for the show notes. But that took a bit of doing. Um, I, what also caught my eye is her environmental portrait. So there's one there called the Puppeteers, which is a very bizarrely composed image, but it works. It's got like almost it's almost all black because the background behind the puppets is this deep black background, mm-hmm. and you see mm-hmm. these two very small puppets at the very bottom of this shot. And with their heads half cut off at the very, 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 very top, just peeping over the black surround, you have the puppeteers. It's, mm. it's a very surreal image, but again, very powerful. And for those who are uh, into dance, she's got these great portraits of uh, Martha Graham, 1931. And some of them are double exposures, really interesting. Yeah, and uh, some of her, actually, there's one I have picked out in the links is dancers, three of them mid-jump, mm. frozen in the air. I mean, amazing stuff. That's from 1929. Yeah. yeah. Um, three dancers. I, I, they're, they're in mid-flight. looks amazing. Yeah. I, I really hope people go and, 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 and take a look at, at the work that we're, we're talking about because, I mean, these are some of the people who really, I want to say set standards, but they were certainly early on in photography and really were experimenting uh, in ways that, you know, we sort of take for granted now. Yeah, I mean, I think it's really good to go back to these roots uh, and and see and 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 also recognize the. I mean, there are some limitations to to uh, what they were working with compared to what we have now. We're sort of unlimited in in our technology and what we can do, hmm. and it's amazing to see what uh, these people from you know uh, our past, our photographic past, what they could do with what they had. You know, and it really wasn't about technology so much as it was about uh, you know, the subjects. Well, if you click on the, the one I have in the show notes, the picture of Ansel Adams at work, if you look at the gear he's had to lug up to Yosemite, and I don't think yeah. it was a car park then. <laughs> like, I mean, For such a little guy, too. Yeah, and he's... Not he, very... Like, I don't know how secure that rock is. He's, he seems to be standing on a box of his own gear, perched on a wobbly rock with a giant tripod and a large format camera. I'm not yeah, sure how yeah. health and safety that is, but uh, yeah. he's putting a lot of effort into taking that picture. Yeah, he's a. Well, it's good to see the the work he went through to go to get a shot. Um, yeah. But yeah, her the, work is. So the whole point of the F sixty four thing is to is to say that there's beauty everywhere. Just stop and take it in. So that that's a good message yeah. as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I I haven't actually gone through her portfolio in a while, so it's really nice to to catch up. The, the three dancers is is pretty amazing. I mean. Yeah, wonder how many shots it took for her to get that. 
Um, but probably not that much because film was, you know, she might have been shooting with a large format camera. Yeah. Film was still expensive, yeah. Um, but also her study of uh, uh, the the nudes um, and stuff, and and seeing them juxtaposed next to the flowers. Yeah. Um, this just uh, anyway, it's it's a. Yeah, you can spend quite a bit of time actually on that yeah. on that website, imagingcunningham.com. You can yeah. explore in there. Um, the yeah. nudes are together if you don't want to see them. Um, not that I think you should think like that, but you know, some people yeah, well, take it to work or whatever, for... and that's not good. People <laughs> yeah, fired true. over photography. That's what are you looking at over there? No, yeah, it's exactly. an artist. <laughs> yeah, get back to work. Exactly. Um, so good again, choice. Another so we, good choice. we have we have a theme here. So far, everyone we've picked has been involved in not just taking pictures, but also helping build up other photographers. That's well, so far I might I so might far, throw that. I think we may break the loop. trend, but <laughs> just because. So you you then picked a photographer very much in keeping with your current uh, passion, I think. Yeah, and this was someone who, I mean, I. I I ought to be more knowledgeable about ph- photographers, especially in New York. But uh, this uh, guy's name popped up a couple of years ago uh, when the Metropolitan uh, Transit Authority, the people who run our subways, had a show of his work uh, in one of the um, one of the stations, one of the big stations. And his name is uh, Danny Lyons. And what um, when I first saw the article, it was. Uh, Let's see what it was from Gothamist. Uh, Enter the 1966 subway system through photographer Danny Lyons' lens. And, of course, I went, took you literally again. Mm-hmm. Yes. Exactly <laughs> I went 50 back years. 50 years. And I found his, I was like, oh, right, Danny Lyons. And he's got a small series of pictures that he photographed on the New York City subway, 1966. Apparently, it was... Uh, one day in New York uh, on the subway, uh, I think it said it was New Year's Day or New Year's Eve Day, uh, that he pictures. took his camera and went into the New York City subway system and photographed, you know, a, a small selection of pictures. <laughs> Sorry, I've just noticed the vending machine here. It says, well, one yeah. <laughs> way and horoscope. Those so two things I'm, clearly go together. <laughs> yeah. So I'm of the age where I actually remember these things. Um now, I was only two years old in 1966, but the subway for the longest time had not changed. So, mm. yes, they had these little uh, – actually, I don't remember the weighing um, machines and the horoscope and weight machines. I do remember the gum dispensers. Yeah. And basically you put in – I can't remember. It was a nickel and you got this little box. Uh, two, uh, a two-pack of chiclets would pop out, um, at least for the ones I was there. But, yes, that's what caught my eye is that – uh, these pictures, um, first of all, they're in color yeah. and to see some, uh, they also look like they're shot with a medium format camera. So they're square. So very much like, you know, for people who are listening, might think of Instagram pictures. I mean, I yeah. almost hate to say that. Only but, in shape. They're certainly. Well, in shape and certainly the, the candidness of them too. Um, you yeah. know, the street photography quality of them. Uh, but you know, I'm sure I mean, Instagram, you know, has Danny Lyons to be, you know, they need to thank him for, uh, you know, as no, one of the photographers. Like, there's who, just a few of these, there's five pictures here in this link you have for the show notes. And I've just, I must have clicked through all five of them 10 times now. They're amazing. There's, there's one great shot of a woman leaning on a corner uh, of a wall at the station. And there's a big yellow 
um, sign on it and it says, do not stand here. And she's leaning right on that sign. Yeah, like there's actually yeah. an arrow touching her shoulder. Yeah, touching her, pointing. <laughs> don't like, stand don't here. Lean, don't stand here. <laughs> yeah. uh, and I, I did a little research about him. Uh, and you know, you'll have the show notes, obviously, the, the some of the links. But uh, he was also involved in photographing a lot of the uh, civil rights movement in the 60s. Uh, from the March on Washington uh, and the the Baptist Church bombing in Birmingham, Alabama, and also he pho- he did these um, projects where he photographed the uh, Chicago Outlaws Motorcycle Club and and also death row prisoners in Texas. Uh, so he's got a very deep um, photographic history, and I'm I believe he's still alive and he's. You know, he tries to take pictures on the on the uh, subway still with his iPhone. <laughs> he said it's well, he won't stand not out as easy, really. Huh? He won't stand out if he's just doing it with. His no, iPhone. he wouldn't. No, he's he's got to be what? He was twenty five in nineteen sixty six, so he's seventy five now. So he's still a young man. Yeah, um, really. So if you're on the New York City subway system and you see a seventy five year old guy with an iPhone, there's a good chance it's Danny Lyon taking your picture. But uh, what grabbed me about his work is the simplicity and the softness of them, I should say. Uh, I recently was teaching a class in street photography, and one of the photographers I brought up as my inspiration was Walker Evans. Excuse me. And he did a whole bunch of subway photography as well in the 40s, I think during World War II or just after it. Um, and they're much, you know, they're black on my pictures, but there's something a little bit more bleak about them. Um, right, because the subway in this time would not have been considered a friendly place, but the tone of these lion's photos is welcoming, friendly, warm. It's it not is, a scary even if place. It, it is it's not a scary place. And it's interesting because, you know, he chose to use color film, uh, which, and, and with a very soft palette too. And, uh, so it does go to say what you choose and how do you present your pictures can actually set the tone of what you're trying to show. So I thought that was an interesting contrast. To, also, uh, so much street photography is monochrome, and here is excellent street photography in color. Right, that's color. Yeah. So although some of it, it's some of it is monochromistic. I don't know if that's a word, but there's a shot of a sailor <laughs> in a in a subway station mm. and. You know, you can kind of see a little skin tone. You can kind of see that his jacket is a blue, but it's really kind of a monochrome picture. But there's just enough color in it to, you know, for you to know that it's color. But um, the subjects, are, you know, are center in the frame generally. Um, it's hard to tell if he's sneaking the picture or not. Sometimes people look like they're aware of him. Um, the the lady was in wearing... the red and the lady in the green. The lady in the red is clearly looking straight yeah, at the lens. She's like... And what's really interesting, especially about that picture, is how modern the people look. Yeah. And we know that they're 50 years ago. And, and like, I think that woman in the red coat looks very much today in she some way. She reminds me a bit of Condoleezza Rice. Interesting. So Condoleezza Rice. Maybe I've been watching too much politics. <laughs> yeah, I think so. Um, so I would, I would seek out uh, – this guy's work, especially from uh, from the civil rights movement, too. Uh, those those pictures are just amazing. Um, but I thought, you know, this sort of resonated with me because I'm I'm photographing on the subway as well. You know, amongst yeah. you know other four million, you know, people with iPhones taking pictures of everybody on the subway. 
but it's your backyard, yeah. so that makes it extra special. It is my yeah, and I you know I also happen to pick two photographers who are in my backyard, so it's uh, that's, that's interesting. Good. He got on the subway because uh, he got advice from his mother. She's basically saying uh, she said if you're bored, just talk to somebody on the subway. Huh. So he decided to go onto the subway with the train with the uh, with the camera. The other thing about this is that it you know I look at this and I I do get a little reminiscent about film. Um, the the film days. There's something about the quality of these pictures, which I think it'd be very hard to capture digitally. And I can't quite put my finger on it. I mean, maybe it's the palette. Maybe it's the... Well, the color palette the, is particularly... Yeah, it, it's it's a warm, muted. smooth... Yeah, I don't know. It it feels like film. And it feels like a... When I look at these, I it's, to me, a breath of fresh air in some way. Um, yeah, because the color is... The, the blue, sorry, the the reds and the greens don't feel like they've been shifted in color. Like if you were right, to take a right. normal picture and shift it towards the warm, they would shift. Right, but all right. the whites are warm, so it's right. a strange it's, mix it's, that the whites are warm, but all the other colors are right. It, it's it's yeah pleasing it's, though. It, well, what happened back then was that films responded to different wavelengths of light differently. I mean, it wasn't like you know, yeah. like today's sensors where everything is sort of even. I mean. Some films were less sensitive to this color and a little bit more sensitive to that color. And so they recorded them differently as if you were to go into Photoshop today and adjust, you know, uh, this color this way and that color that way. But, you know, here it's happening, you know, oh, take one picture and, and you're right and you're done. Yeah. So yeah, no, and beautiful. I'm also, yeah, and just to like, you know, state for a fact, I, I was so happy when I didn't have to shoot film anymore. <laughs> I mean, I'm not like one of those like, oh, I got to get a film camera and I got to shoot film again because it's film, film. I'm not that kind of person. No, no. There are parts of me that miss it. I grew up learning my photography using film and and there was a lot of frustration with it. But sometimes it's really nice to just look at something. It's Like I said, it's a breath of fresh air. It's not hitting me over the head that it's technical. It's just a picture that someone took in the most simple way um, and – Nothing is really done to it. You know, we we look at these pictures and it's like, oh my gosh, what you know, what filter did you? What visco filter or did you use to get those colors? And, and it's like, I'm like, well, you know what? I just took a took a piece the of camera, film and shot it. And there's something like my eyes can come to rest because I know that there was nothing more done to these pictures than, you know, the shutter was open, film was developed, the print was made, and here you go. The other thing to note is some of them are not technically perfect, but they are still fantastic pictures to sort of circle back around to Julia Margaret Cameron a bit. Like the the lady in green and the lady in red. The lady mm-hmm. in green is pretty out of focus. Yeah, yeah. It doesn't matter, though. It's an amazing picture. Yeah. I mean, it's a shallow, it's probably a shallow depth of field. She's a little further away from the camera. There's another shot, the one with the uh, the the uh, horoscope and weight machine mm. and the... That's Decalb Avenue, and I know that stop, so I've gotten off of that <laughs> a lot. But you can see that there's a there's a sort of a ghosty figure on the right, and you can kind of see a foot there. So yeah. his exposure is pretty long, and those guys that are standing there that are sharp are just probably waiting for the train, and they're not moving because they're waiting for a train. And obviously the train is moving by, so it's it's blurry. But this exposure must have been uh, perhaps at least a second, maybe it looks like it doesn't close exist. to a second. The guy with the hat who's looking at the camera is a little bit blurred. So he's right, but right in front of him, there's a go, ghost. You can see there's a ghost. There was a person walking with some speed, and all they, they captured was one foot, maybe a little bit of a jacket, certainly yeah. no head. And uh, 
and yet the the picture is relatively sharp. You know, he was probably hand holding it. He didn't wasn't allowed to bring tripod down in the into the subway, which you're still not allowed to do. Yeah, because um, if you look at the number, two, you know, track two and stuff written on the pillar, that's sharp. Right, it is. Yeah. So well done. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it is. I mean, he was probably using a medium format camera, so he had it wrapped around his neck, uh, probably hanging, you know, towards his midsection. It might have been very easy to keep that steady because he didn't have to sort of hold it in front of him. See, a human tripod. Uh, a human tripod, yeah. So I anyway, I, it's it's a breath of fresh air. It's nice to see New York in that time period uh, as well. I mean, especially for me. And there were, there were cushions on the subway train. <laughs> oh, is that gone now? Is that a luxury we no longer Oh, no. Get? Yeah, cushions. My gosh, no. Oh, no, geez, no, 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 no. I feel no. better about Irish Rail now. No, no, no. Plastic. Plastic that could be hosed off, and I'm not going to go into any more detail. (laughs) You just need to hear the phrase, hosed down. Yeah, no, I'm done. Yeah, that's sufficient. (laughs) (laughs) And it's also the New York I grew up in, too. So there's a little bit of the, you know, nostalgia in some sense. I mean, not exactly. Like you said, it was two years old in 1966. But, of course, I'm just dating myself, I'm happy to say. But uh, the subway didn't change all that much and in fact it got worse towards the 70s that shade of brown from those cushions that's something that the world has lost and that's probably no bad thing right that was like rattan i think or wicker i don't know what that was the thing right because if you look at old irish rail old old bus and so the public transport so basically when i was going to school what would happen is they would take the old crappy buses that were no longer good enough for real people and make them become school buses and they all had this this brown (laughs) To me, this brown means old bus. <laughs> oh, God, my gosh. It doesn't exist yeah. anymore, and I'm not particularly sorry. <laughs> yeah, that's true. I'm not – these uh, old subway cars, they had no air conditioning, uh, and they had – I don't know if this this car specifically had um, an open fan, um, like an open ceiling fan. Oh. I mean, with nothing covering it, um, but there were subways with uh, – with fans in them that were covered, and everybody would hover underneath them in the summer right, time. Right, because that was your were, fresh air. Yeah, and I must say that I know that the, those first three pictures of the subway, people sitting on the subway, that car, they, I want to say retired recently, and that's not the right word, but re, like that was one of the last kind of cars that they did retire mm. relatively recently, in the past 20 years. And the conductor um, had to... Stand between the cars. Uh, stand between the cars and on on these little steps, and and sort of look between the cars at the platform on either end. And then he had these mechanical handles that he used to squeeze that would close the doors. I guess they were wow. hooked up electri- uh, electrically. Um, but right now, the the conductors have their own little booth, right, and they're safe, and they can be you know they have the electronics. Yeah. This one train, they had to go out between the cars so they could have fallen into the tracks and they had to step up on these little steps and hold these handles it was a very strange sight and there's still some of these cars left over at the um there's a metropolitan uh there's a subway museum in new in brooklyn uh and they have some of these cars and you can go on them uh you can go on at the museum but every now and then they take them out and they run these old cars brilliant as nostalgia day and they'll like they'll run them to yankee stadium or something like that so that's a bit of news. Yeah. <laughs> a bit of, uh, the, the other thing, of course, I think uh, we haven't mentioned, we probably should, is, of course, the, the, one of the eye-catching things that immediately jumps out is 
the old subway map. I mean, there is something iconic oh, yes. about that subway map. Yes, yeah. And the if we could zoom in far enough, we could see, well, actually, compared it to a new subway map, there's a lot more subway lines now added. But it's not, the subway map style hasn't changed Technically, it's the London Underground style. Basically, everyone copied the London yeah, yeah. Underground's iconic yeah. design. But it's still, there's something about seeing it there in paper behind a little yeah. sheet of glass. It's, yeah. it's nice. And, and no graffiti yet. The subways weren't quite uh, weren't quite getting covered in graffiti in, in that time period in the 60s. They still looked, you know. That's a really good yeah. point, actually. Every picture, all yeah. the walls are pristine. Yeah. It was, oh, it was no, hang on. Period. Do not stand what? here, lady, has some graffiti next to her. Yeah, it's still not as bit, it's not though. as yeah. a little bit, but it's not like uh, well, when actually, you get into the seventies and eighties. They graffitied between the lines and the tiles. They actually yeah. kept within their square, as if they were writing yeah. in a copybook in school. Which is <laughs> <laughs> a nice touch. Yeah. Um, you had another link you, you you thought you might want to throw in as a sort of a bonus. Do you want to do you want to quickly throw that in? Yeah, when I did a search for photographers in nineteen sixty six, fifty years ago. Uh, an interesting link popped up was this movie called Blow Up. And I I mentioned it. I was like, oh, that would be great to mention because so many people of my generation um, or earlier, because this came out in 66, yeah. uh, was, in, was we were inspired to become photographers by seeing, when we saw this film. And it was a uh, 1966 British-Italian film uh, by Antonioni. Um, about a fashion photographer who who thinks he captures a murder uh, during a photography session. And oh, so I blow up get, is blowing up a photo. Blowing up is blowing up a photo. There's actually a De Palma remake of it with John Travolta, and I'm spacing out on the sa- on the name of it. Actually, it wasn't very good. Okay, uh, but it so was with a sound the engineer. Huh? So watch the original is what you're saying. It's a it's a takeoff on this, but it was done with sound instead of a photographer. But anyway, um, it's it's not a very good type. But I saw this in I saw this in college. You know, it's a and it's one of those movies you see if you're taking a film history class. And so I saw this, and I was like, I mean, I was already in college for photography, so but I had seen it before, and uh, it is one of those films that it's you know very sixties, um, but it's a strange movie. It stars uh, David Hemmings. Uh, as the photographer, and there's probably a lot of not safe for work parts in it. You know, it's in a partially an Italian film. Uh, I'm not sure if it's uh, rated R. It's not on Netflix. I just checked. It's probably not. It's probably a, it's a hard. It's maybe a hard film to get. I'm sure you can get it on DVD. Yeah, it's, you know, it's, it's not definitely not a net, Well, sorry, it's not an Irish Netflix. Everyone should check yeah. their own Netflix, but it's not here. Yeah. But when you said, you know, look for a photographer in the 60s, and this popped up, and I said, that would be a good thing to mention. I mean, again, yeah. it's old style, you know, uh, it's it, it's a mer- it's sort of a mystery, but David Hemming plays this photographer so well. And you look at him, and you're like, you just, there was a time period when you looked at people like photographers, and like, they had this certain lifestyle, and sort of way of they presented themselves and had a camera around their neck all the time. And you just, there's something very attractive about that. And this movie really captures it. If you're, you know, today we're thinking everybody's a photographer and you don't look twice at someone with a camera. Back then, you did look twice at someone with a camera. And it was something, you know, you, they were, you know, they had a different kind of lifestyle. At least, you know, maybe certainly fashion photographers did. But I think everybody did. I think it was a, it was definitely a different world. And so I, I recommend it. If we go for recommendations on films, I, I definitely recommend it for those 
people who are interested in uh, seeing why a lot of people of my age uh, became photographers. Um, some of us saw this movie and said, that's, that's what we want to be. Excellent. Oh, the movie was, the De Palma movie was called Blowout with John Travolta, and uh, it's similar to Blowout. Oh, that one is on Netflix. <laughs> yes, and it's not a good movie. Okay, so I won't watch that one. I I wouldn't see it. It's it's not one of De Palma's better films. So we have a recommendation uh, and an anti-recommendation. Yes, yes, yes. I would would see this. And again, you got to sort of, you know, it's not a Michael Bay film or it's not going to have a lot of quick cutting. It's it's very much of the 60s. So, you know, it's for only those people who've got patience to to see something of, uh, of that time period because it's filmed a lot differently than things today. But I would definitely recommend seeing it if you uh want to get a feel for photographers especially fashion photographers in the 60s excellent yeah okay uh, do you want to throw in your second bonus as well so quickly because oh just too, i have another bonus nice. yeah, yeah oh, just, <laughs> just too nice a link not to pop into the show notes and tell people okay, to go look at right and uh this was going way back when you know it was back to uh, world war one but um an article popped up from the daily mail and in, uh, in june of this year uh some 4,000 photographs were um, found in a French farmhouse near the Somme, and they were unidentified World War I British soldiers that were photographed by, I think it was like a French couple in this town. And they photographed all or as many of the British soldiers that passed through their town or stayed in their house uh, or in their farmhouse as possible. And um, you'll have the link, obviously, right? Yeah, I'll pop the link into the show notes for people. These, these, these really just spend a few minutes scrolling down through these. They are amazing photographs, and they're yeah, yeah, they're from they're, World War One, so they're literally a hundred years ago. But they're right. amazing, and they are they are colorized, uh, and they were colorized specifically for I think for um, I'm not sure if it was for a documentary uh, film, but uh, also for people to help identify their their ancestors, because all these pictures are unidentified, so nobody you know knows who these people are. Um, you can definitely tell they're they're British soldiers. There's a very British look to them, obviously in the uniforms, but the color colorization is actually very done very well. Yeah, and, and this is back when they had the rank insignia at the bottom of the sleeve instead of on the shoulders. So you see yeah, yeah. With, with fairly substantial rank in some cases, and the, the red epaulets I think meant he was uh, in the general staff. Yeah, oh, yeah, I didn't know that, and um, the. There's something brought to life and brought closer to us when something is colorized, especially when they're done well. You know, it's one thing to see them in black and white, but to see the skin tones and the uniform, uh, it somehow brings us a little bit closer, I think, to that time period. Anyway, there are beautiful photographs, and there's one particular one that I love a lot is of a, um, a soldier on a horse uh, in front of a in front of a door- doorway. Yeah. Um, did we talk about this once before? <laughs> I don't think we did, but it's okay. A lovely I picture. might have talked about this on someone's show. I, I remember speaking about this, but it's really interesting because there's these children in the background, uh, sort of standing in this giant doorway, looking at this uh, soldier on a horse. And what strikes me is that uh, it's not an HDR picture, but mm-hmm. there's a lot of tones in it. I mean, obviously, it's originally a black and white picture, but um, it's it's just I don't know. It's an ama- to me, it's an amazing image but uh definitely check these out and uh um they're definitely worth looking at and i thought because they were shot by uh you know people on a farm they're like not photographers but they're photographed in such a way that 
you know, they're beautiful photographs. Yeah. Um, I have I have a sort of a related tip for people in Ireland. Um, I just checked and it's still on the RTE player. So RTE is our equivalent of the BBC. It's our national broadcaster. Uh-huh. And they have a website where you can catch up on their, their stuff for a month after it's broadcast if it's their own and a week if it's something they bought. So it's still there. Uh, let me see actually how many days it's available. Does it tell me? Days remaining 20. So it's available for another 20 days. It's a documentary called Hidden Histories. World War One's forgotten photographs. Now, this is this is not from a French farmer. This is pictures taken by British Tommies, as in privates. So, not British officers, not the British press corps, not the official army photographers who all took impressive photographs. But these are candid shots of the troops in World War One taken by the troops themselves on their little oh. portable cameras, and they have an honesty that's missing from the official stuff. Mm-hmm. And it starts off quite playful, you know, where, oh, it'll all be over by Christmas, at that sort of era of the war. And they become steadily more. There's one of them is particularly harrowing where basically the family have kept the guy's work, but the last picture was not taken by him. They sent the camera home to his parents, so when they developed it, the last picture is his grave taken by one of his friends. Mm. Wow. And that's like, oh, my God. You know, wow. it's... It's very moving. And the fact that, obviously, he was known that photography was important to him, that they thought that the, what they should do is use his camera to take the picture of his grave. It, it, it's it's very moving. So it's Hidden Histories, World War One's Forgotten Photographs. It's on the RTE player, and it'll be there for 20 more days as we record this on the 27th of September. So until the middle of October, it'll be there. And I highly recommend that it's an hour-long documentary. Um, I wonder if I can get it here. Yeah, I wonder who it's by. It may be by the BBC because it's based on British stuff. So you might be. Anyway, Hidden Histories, colon, World War One's Forgotten Photographs. So if you can get it, do get it. It is, uh, I watched it the other day and it it is powerful and impressive. So there we go. So we've lots of bonus content in there. Um, We should probably wrap out the show. Just realized I was afraid we'd go (laughs) short having only two panelists. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, it's on YouTube. Oh, is it? Great. I okay. think so. 59 minutes, right? Yeah. Yeah, that, that's, that's the right length. From 2014? That would make sense, wouldn't it? Because that was the 100 years of the start of... Hidden Histories, World War One's Forgotten Photographs. Yeah, it's on uh, it's on YouTube, so maybe I'll, I'll pass you the, the link. Throw the link in the Skype there, and I will pop it into the show notes for people. Yeah, actually, I'm going to have to put it... I can't send it into well, Skype. Well, get it to me computers. somewhere within the next <laughs> but half I'll get it to you. Yes, it will be in the show. It will be in the show it's notes. on YouTube. Perfect. Yeah, so you can watch it. Excellent. Okay, Antonio, cool. do you want to remind the listeners where they can hear more of your fantastic podcasting? Uh, yeah, I have the uh, Switch to Manual podcast, the Street Shots podcast that I do with my partner, Tom, or with other partners who have been opening up to uh, different people. So it's uh, switchtomanual.com slash podcast, Street Shots podcast. And we're on the Facebooks and the Twitters um, at uh, on Twitter at switch the number two manual. So switch to manual and we are book face people too. So check us out there. And if you're not uh, looking for switch to manual, you can find me on Twitter at AM Rosario and my website is AM Rosario.com and I'm on Flickr as AM Rosario and my Instagram account is AM Rosario. So just look for AM Rosario. Yeah. It's nice having an uncommon name, isn't it? It's, it's, yeah. If you see a B-Boo shots, it's me. If you see an AM Rosario, it's you. Yeah, yeah. Um, um, 
Yep. Bef- before we wrap up, just to say this is, we're just wrapping up here at episode 36, which means we have coming, believe it or not, to the last the last show of three years of this podcast. It's just astonishing. Really? It's been going for three wow. years. Yeah. Um, so I just want to say an extra thank you to everyone who has supported the show over those three years. And I'm very much looking forward to starting into year four next month. Um, I want to give an extra big thank you to the people who support the show on Patreon. Um by pledging on Patreon, you guys basically make it possible for me to keep doing this show. There are bills to be paid every month, and I know that there's money coming in because of the, Patri- the Patreon, Patreon, whatever you want to pronounce it, supporters. I don't think the show would have lasted three years without without that support, so I just want to say an extra big thank you to everyone who supports the show on Patreon. Um, there are links, there will be show notes with lots of links to all the pictures we've talked about, all the various things we've mentioned over at lets-talk.ie. And while you're over there, there'll be three large blue buttons to support the show. So there's a Patreon link, there's a PayPal link, and a link to a Zazzle store where you can buy stuff with our logo on it. So we get a, basically there's a commission on buying the stuff. And then you're sort of a walking billboard. So I guess you support the show forever by doing that. Um, And of course, the simple stuff really works. Just tell your friend that's supporting the show. Um, Just review us on iTunes. That's supporting the show. I mean, there's millions of ways to support the show. So I appreciate everyone who supports the show in any way whatsoever. Uh, oh, actually, also, uh, if you have any feedback or whatever, you will find a feedback button at less-talk.ie, and also you can send us questions for future Q&A shows while you happen to be over there. Uh, I've been your host, Bart Bouchot, so you can find me at bartb.ie, and until next time, happy snapping! You're listening to another great podcast in the MyMac Podcasting Network. Tech Fan Podcast. I thought their explanation of it was a little bit weak. A little bit weak? (laughs) Just shut up. They said they have a vision. Oh, okay. Or if I'm in my car and the music just wirelessly stops working for no freaking reason, I got to reboot the phone. I'm so ticked off about it. It it was a piece of junk and no one bought it. I did. (laughs) Yeah. Well, now you got two of them that are going to fall out of your ear. However good they are, the price is pretty hard to stomach. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Wait, 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 wait. What the hell is going on? Their their vision is also profit margin. Shove them as far into your ears you can. Tech Fan Podcast.